This episode of Superman of the Bronze Age is sponsored by InStock Trades. A mainstay of the collected edition market, InStock Trades has over 13,000 individual trade paperback, graphic novel, and hardcover titles in stock and ready to ship, all at great discounted prices. Most orders ship within 48 hours, and orders over $50 ship for free. You can find them on the web at www.instocktrades.com. Hey guys, Charlie here. Just wanted to stop in at the beginning of the episode to apologize. The audio in this episode is not up to the normal standard. Uh, I didn't realize until after I finished recording this and started editing that apparently the microphone from my laptop is what recorded me, not the headset microphone that I was actually wearing and that I'm wearing right now. So I apologize for the sound quality. It'll be better next time. Uh, I just I didn't have the time or frankly the energy to record it again in time to have the episode post in a reasonable fashion. So here's the episode. I hope you all enjoy. We'll see you next week. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over the Earth and beyond as Superman. This is Superman. Superman. In the Bronze Age. First and only 105th episode of Superman and the Bronze Age. And the Bronze Age? In the Bronze Age! My name is Charlie Niemeyer and I'll be your host for the evening or the day or whenever you're listening to this. I hope you all have had a great week. Mine has been super duper busy. We've, uh, for, well, as I've mentioned many a time, uh, we're having a baby and he's supposed to be here at the end of July. And we have spent the last two weekends painting and hanging and painting and building and moving and painting and hanging stuff. We're just about got everything all set up. His little nursery's got all the Superman and superhero stuff in it. And the guest room doesn't anymore. So that's cool. But this show is not about any of that. This show is about Superman in the Bronze Age. But first, emails. First up, we have a comment by Russell Bragg from last episode for episode 104. And he writes, Hi, Charlie. 
Another barn-burning episode. Great comic. Again, didn't have time to read before listening, but I enjoyed remembering that comic. I'm glad you decided to add the Mr. and Mrs. Superman storyline to the show. I don't know how many more there were in Superman before they moved to Superman Family, but I'll enjoy them while I can get them. My Superman collection has another gap until 3.30. I remember you talked about that one before. I remember how much love you gave that issue, which is sarcasm. For your listeners, that's the issue about super hypnosis and why people don't recognize Superman as Clark Kent. I liked it myself. I continue that I continue to thank you or I liked it myself. I continue to thank you for the plugs you give my podcast. It's go it's slow going but coming along. I had my pre episode and I hope to have the official episode one very soon. I even get to plug your show since you did DC Comics Presents number one not too long ago. Or maybe a long time ago. I can't remember. Oh, well. Better end here for now. Continued success, Russell. Well, thank you, Russell. Uh, yes, Russell did a pre-episode that's available right now. He's still working on getting it on iTunes, but his RSS feed has been set up. So make sure you go, you guys go out and check that out. I'll put the links to it in the show notes. Uh, but good luck on your show, Russell, and I'm glad you enjoyed the issue. Yes, coming up soon is the... Master Mesmerizer of Metropolis, which, ironically, next episode's issue actually, well, I don't want to get into it, uh, which is coming up in just a couple weeks. So, thank you for writing. So, that'll be cool. Next up, we have an email from Jason Jaroslawski, and he writes, Hello, Charlie. I recently discovered the great world of podcasts, and Superman in the Bronze Age was the first one that caught my attention. I have listened to a handful of your shows and really enjoy the way you go through the stories and have notes at the end of chapters relating to the stories, characters, and creators. I have been a huge Superman fan since I was a kid, and the Christopher Reeve films were a huge influence on my superhero love to this day. I am fortunate to have most of the bronze issues in my collection, so it is a real treat to hear you discuss them in a fun, intelligent way and bring even more life to them and enhance my reading pleasure of them. So in conclusion, I just want to say you are doing a super job and keep up the great podcasting of Superman in the Bronze Age. Sincerely, Jason in Canada. Woo! The Great White North. Well, thank you very much, Jason. I, um... I am humbled by your email. Uh, I'm glad you enjoy the show and I'm, that you're enjoying what I'm doing covering the issues. I'll, I'll do my best to keep that going. But thank you very much. So thank you both to Russell and Jason. And after a couple of promos, we'll get right into the next issue of Superman in the Bronze Age. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, 
the Superman Fan Podcast. Superman in the Bronze Age. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. The Schuster Herald Podcast. It's Superman. The Carousel Podcast. The Amateur Steel. A John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley. John Wilson. Billy Hogan. Charlie Niemeyer. J. David Weeder. Jeffrey Taylor. Michael Bailey. Scott Gardner. Sam Rizzo. Danny Sapp. Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co-host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts, we're just family. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Superman number 328 had a cover date of October 1978 and an on-sale date of July 10th, 1978 with a cover price of 50 cents. Attack of the Kryptonoid was written by Marty Pascoe, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Frank Sciaramonte, lettered by Ben Oda, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Julie Schwartz. As our story begins, Superman is flying into space on a special mission, ignorant of the strange object drifting over a different part of the planet. His mission is to dismantle the LDS satellite that the parasite had taken control of a few issues ago. On Earth, his actions are being watched by General Derwent, the one-armed military man that we also saw at the end of that same story. He's currently watching from the lighthouse control room that Superman smashed up, also in that same story, and swears revenge on our, ma- on our man of steel. You know, that old chestnut. Apparently, the good general had been waiting for years to be assigned to a defense project like the LDS, but thanks to Superman's recommendations, the Pentagon shut down the LDS project, making him the laughingstock of the army and leaving him with the possibility of getting busted down to Colonel. There's more to to his story, but that will be revealed a little later. For now, we cut back to Superman, who has smashed the satellite into 
lots of pieces, and is gathering the pieces into his super cape. A final check of the area to see if he collected it all, and Superman spots that strange object from earlier, which actually has the message, DANGER! Contains specimens of microorganisms deadly to all life forms, written in Kryptonese attached to it. The funny thing is that it appears to be melting as it enters Earth's atmosphere, but since it hasn't been turned into kryptonite, the heat of re-entry should not be affecting it that way. The blob then changes into a humanoid form and flies into Superman with enough force for him to be knocked down to the ocean, unconscious. Meanwhile, the humanoid thinks to itself, in yellow thought balloons, years before Deadpool would use the same trick, that contact with the organism was too brief to establish union, much like the Venom symbiote. So it must find Superman. Coincidentally, it lands near the lighthouse, where Superman appears to be taking down the surrounding fence. Strange, but let's just keep going. Touching the fence, the creature transfers itself into a section of it so that when Superman grabs the section of fence, contact is made. Now, I know what you're asking. If that's Superman, first of all, how to get his cape back, and second of all, who is the man is still currently flying up from the ocean and using his telescopic vision to search for the creature? We'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, this the man of steel that just flew out of the ocean can't find the creature anywhere. So he goes back to space, collects his cape full of LDS debris, and delivers it to General Derwent and his assistant, who, as we saw before, isn't happy with the action ace. Superman apologizes for smashing up the place back in Superman 320, and explains that it was because of the parasite and because of the secrecy over the project, which the General takes credit for because he didn't want Superman involved. Since he doesn't want to explain why he didn't want Superman involved, and because Superman consents that the General isn't planning on being the president of his fan club anytime soon, Superman flies off. Then the General explains to his assistant the cause of his hatred of Superman. It all started a few years ago, when the Army was testing the sighting accuracy of their new high-powered howitzer, to which Superman volunteered to be the target for. Apparently, a tiny sliver of the exploding shrapnel penetrated into his left arm. It was so small that he didn't even feel it. But it became severely infected and caused problems with his circulation. By the time the medics examined him, gangrene had already set in, and amputation was the only solution. And since Superman didn't take precautions to prevent such a thing from happening, which has left the general feeling like half a man, he now has a mat on for our favorite caped Kryptonian. And he feels that Superman wasn't needed during the Parasite fiasco because they have their own Superman, a Superman robot, who is currently stacking the sections of fence from earlier. We learned that the robot had washed up on shore in a bunch of pieces near the lighthouse about a year ago and was rebuilt and reprogrammed to answer to General Derwent and generally stays inside a lead-lined shelter so that the real Superman never finds it. Meanwhile, as the Superman robot moves that section of fence that the creature is inhabiting, contact is sustained long enough for fusion. In Metropolis, Superman heads to WGBS and changes to Clark, using the fact that he's actually early for a change to step into a phone booth and use the phone to connect to his computer system in the Fortress, old school style, and has it play back all entries on Kryptonian scientist Sir Z and his experiments in the Kryptonian year of 9997. This leads to a flashback, where we learn that Sir Z had created a new strain of microorganisms called 
uh, I'm calling them commensals, which not only secrete an acid that makes metal pliable like human flesh, but can also detect nerve impulses. So if they were used on, say, an artificial arm, they would allow the arm to move like a regular arm, which Cersei demonstrated using a human test subject. What Cersei did not foresee, however, is that the is that the common cells would reproduce and evolve, needing more room than the artificial limb could provide. So they expanded, covering the test subject and synthesizing flesh and metal into a new substance, basically turning him into an evil, metallical, robotic Mr. Fantastic. Now, what did to conquer all of Krypton? They first killed Cersei before setting out on their mission. But after numerous attempts to stop the creature, the police discovered that extreme cold would render the commensals dormant to capture and destroy the creature. Later, Jorel found Cersei's other vials of commensals, placed them in a refrigerated chest, and shot it into space where the freezing temperatures would keep it dormant. That chest is what fell to Earth meaning that these Kryptonian organisms are now on Earth, and in addition to their previous abilities, they now have unknown super abilities thanks to Earth's yellow sun and lighter gravity. Back at the LDS control room, the Comensals have now taken over the Superman robot, but they need a consciousness, and they convince General Derwent to provide that consciousness. And after a two-panel light show, a figure flies out of the lighthouse at tremendous speed and heads straight for a certain phone booth in the WGBS building where Lana just happens to be on site to witness an explosion and the apparent disintegration of Clark Kent. But what she couldn't see was that Clark flew out of the phone booth at invisible super speed, which may have saved his life, but burned away his suit, leaving Superman to deal with the composite creature who thinks that Superman is actually Jor-El and wants revenge for destroying him, or for destroying them, and wants to fuse with him. Superman does a pretty good job of dodging the creature until he passes a traffic light, at which point the creature uses some kind of vision power to not only cause the pole to wrap itself around the Man of Steel, but also strengthen it so he can't break free from it. And now, with Superman trapped and unable to move, the creature extends its arm toward him, preparing to make contact. Now see, I thought that that was kind of a story that would have been set really good in, oh, I don't know, action comics? At least the end part. A lot of action going on. But let's take a look at the notes. First of all, let's look at the cover. It's a beautiful Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Dick Giordano cover. And it actually depicts that last scene from the issue. Uh, Superman getting wrapped up by the traffic light, which looks very awesome, by the way. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people watching. It's pretty scary. Uh, okay, page two. I love that Superman's supposed to go dismantle the LDS, but really he just flies up at super speed and smashes into it and then collects the pieces. All those people who say Superman doesn't use his head, there's one for you. Because he really could have just taken it apart, used some heat vision to cut it into nice big pieces, but no, he just he smashes into it and then has to go collecting the pieces. Fortunately, his cape is pretty stretchable, so he's able to collect it pretty easily. I don't know how he kept it all wrapped. Well, I guess he tied it up. But anyway. Uh, now, part of this is important because as he flies down, he doesn't have his cape on. And when I first read this, I thought we would get the continuity error because after Superman smashes into the water unconscious, 
the very next scene shows a Superman with his cape on collecting parts of that fence. And I was a, I actually wrote down the note. What happened here? Until I found out that it was a robot. Now, another thing is that this robot, if you look at the artwork, I'm not going to mention it here, but if you look at the artwork of this robot, there's a visual cue that somehow is important to the outcome of this story. Now, I only know a certain, I only know about it because I kind of skimmed the next issue, and I know it's somewhat important, but I'm not sure how it's important. But if you have this issue and you can look at the Superman robot, you can see something, something about the robot is different. And it's a visual cue that, according to the little bit at the end of this issue, details somehow is, plays a key role in being able to defeat the composite creature. Anyway, moving right along. Okay, page 11. I thought it was really cool. Now, this is, of course, the 70s, late 70s, in fact. But the fact that he could call his fortress. Now, basically, I would think it maybe it's super speed. He probably could have flown to the fortress, looked at the info, and got back to Metropolis in less time or about the same amount of time. But whatever. It, it was kind of... It, it not only is an interesting way to... Uh, set up some excitement near the end of the issue but it also needlessly brings lana into it who thinks clark's dead now how is he going to explain that is what you're probably wondering that's for next issue i will say however on page 12 there's a couple images of clark as he's listening in and thinking to himself during the whole common Saul's story where it looks like they repurposed some george klein inked art it's Interesting. I mean, the hair is longer and the forehead's not as big, but just the way the details are drawn or inked on the face, it looks more like a George Klein inked image. It's really weird, especially the one, two, three, four, fifth panel. Very strange, very weird. Especially since, uh, unfortunately, George Klein was, uh, had passed away by the time this issue would, would have even been thought of. Uh, let's see, moving along to page 14, That's it kind of looks like a demonic Superman a little bit, the Superman robot, uh, and it's completely white, but the eyes have this red glow, as, so, and as does the body, uh, but I can't believe the general would kind of be jumping at the chance, but I can't believe he'd be jumping at the chance to become one with this robot creature thing, but the idea that he'd be powerful and could destroy Superman kind of shows his short-sightedness. It probably wasn't good to have him in the military in the first place. Uh, now, we're not completely sure what happens with this light show. The creature touches the general's shoulder, and there's this light show, and it says, and I'll read the actual captions, the creatures can now transfer themselves from one thing to another into living metal, or into metal or living tissue. However, one of the parties to the transfer is destroyed in the process. Either the thing the common souls are departing, or the thing they're entering. All this Derwent senses in an instant. An instant too late. Seconds later, a lone flying figure departs the lighthouse. Is it robot, or man, or something else? So that leaves a question. 
is this the robot and the creatures thinking they're Derwent? Is it Derwent in there? Or is Derwent, or is the robot gone and somehow this is Derwent, but the Superman costume remains? I'm not sure. All I can tell you is that it has two arms. It, I can tell you, however, that Derwent has lost his left arm. And the left arm is not the one that actually does anything in this entire issue. It can move. And, you know, it can move around to help with the flying and stuff. But once the creature shows up in Metropolis, he basically, it, sorry, it basically uses the vision powers. And when it's extending an arm, it's the right arm. So I wonder if that has anything to do with it. Or maybe, I mean, that could be the visual cue, in fact, but I know it's not. Uh, so who knows what's going on with that? It, probably whoever read the issue and knows next issue. In any event, overall, I like this story. It's very good. It's got a lot of good setup. It's actually it was pretty intriguing to read. The only slow part was the flashback about the Coleman Sauls. Granted, it was important. We needed to know about them, but it was kind of slow. The, the rest of it was really cool, though. And the artwork, like I said, actually, other than... Superman looking awkward on the first page and the weird inking done on, on Clark during the flashback sequence, the rest of it actually looks pretty good. Could someone else have come through and done it a little more flashy looking? Probably. But I enjoy it. It still looks good to me. But that wasn't all in this issue. That's right, folks. There was a backup feature. And which one was it? Now, a glimpse at the man behind the mild-mannered facade of the gentleman reporter. When he's not being the mighty Superman, what is he being? For the answer, treat yourself to this tale in a series that shows the drama, the excitement, and the humanity of the private life of Clark Kent. Alright, the title of the backup feature is Clark Kent. How Would You Like to Meet Your Real Father? Written by Carrie Burkett, penciled by Kurt Schaffenberger, inked by Tex Blaisdell, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, colored by Jerry Serpe, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Now, I'm going to try to go a little quicker on this one. Now, what happens is the story starts off with Clark, Jimmy, and Steve Lombard eating lunch at the Galaxy Cafeteria. And while they're doing so, a private investigator named Jeff Landis reveals that he knows who Clark's real father is, using a birthmark on Clark's right arm as proof. Apparently, the son of a millionaire architect named Robert Linden had been kidnapped years ago, but the boy was never found, even though the ransom had been paid. Since Clark has the same birthmark, and the kidnappers had been tracked to an area near Smallville around the time that Clark was found on the doorsteps of the Smallville Orphanage, the P.I. believes that Clark is that boy. So anyway, we learn that Mr. Linden hates law enforcement because they weren't able to recover his son. So when Clark and the P.I. and Steve, actually, go to the Linden estate, Clark refuses to go inside, demanding that Linden come out to him. Once he steps outside, one of Linden's guards holds the men at gunpoint, but the P.I. quickly takes him down. 
we then learned that the PI is actually Lyndon's missing son and had been a classmate of Clark's named Jeff Landis, as we already knew. When WGBS did a documentary about the kidnapping, Clark recognized the birthmark on Jeff and contacted him. He also had Jimmy check up on Lyndon and found out about a man named Curtis that Lyndon had exposed for using substandard materials in his construction business. Curtis was sent to prison because of, of Lyndon and planned to infiltrate and kill Lyndon as payback once he got out. So Clark came up with, or Clark and Jeff came up with this whole story so that they could get to the house they could lure Lyndon out, and Clark, knowing what Curtis looks like, would be able to save the day or protect Lyndon in some way. Uh, and, by, and by the way, of course, Curtis was the actual guard with the gun. And of course, and after they take out, they take down Curtis. Uh, Jeff reveals that he's actually Lyndon's son, and ironically, he's a lieutenant detective with the police force. So they get their reunion. Curtis goes back to jail. And we find out that they had that Clark and Jeff acted out this whole scene in front of Steve to see if their story was convincing enough. Because after all, if you can convince the idol of America, you can convince anyone. Apparently. This story was a little far-fetched for me. I could see maybe Clark knowing about Jeff and everything. That's fine. But, I don't know, it just seems a little too flashy kind of a, like too much pomp and circumstance for this kind of thing. Clark's taking a big risk setting this all up so that they can try to get the drop on this criminal. Uh, since the criminal's there anyway, uh, they probably could have just gotten him. Uh, he probably, you know, shouldn't be there with a gun near Linden anyway. Uh, but that's beside the point. It just seemed a little too much drama for that. So I wasn't a huge fan. The art actually is pretty good. Uh, Tex Blystel is not Schaffenberger's usual inker. And after all the complaints I had about against him for inking Kurt Swan, he actually does pretty good at inking Kurt Schaffenberger. I don't know if it's the slightly more simplistic artwork or just the style, but it actually works pretty well with Kurt Schaffenberger's artwork. So I was pretty fond of that. So overall, I'd say it was a eh, pretty okay story. It, it was still somewhat entertaining, if not awesome. And it's the first time I've said Carrie Burkett's name on this show, so that was pretty cool. And what we're going to do next is a couple of promos, and then I'll be right back with the ads. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Hey, everyone. Sean Engel here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to? Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, palling around with Simon Cowell, prepping for the Mayan Apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point, and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you'd be here now. Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus US-1? Um, no. I'm going to start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern. And that supposedly is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CD signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner. 
will he be getting the metal plate in his head to allow them to receive CP signals? No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs. Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18 healer is just too goofy? Precisely. <sighs> Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes? Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish these books up, you'll cover US-1? Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weeder to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. It's come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com we now return to superman and the bronze age all right ads at least the house ads this time uh once we get past the inside front cover which is not superhero related we go let's see we got uh slim jim grit that's not doing anything for us hodgepodge ad page we don't like that ah Hostess ad, Batman and the Corsair of Crime. Batman has a practical foe, and it's Captain Sting-Ari. Now, hang on a second. Now I'm going to do my best to act this out, I guess, but I'm not going to do the gravelly Batman voice because it just doesn't fit with this story. So let's see if we can do this. Okay. <clears throat> We start off with Batman and Robin in the Batcopter flying over the city. And Robin says, The Corsair of Crime is holding Commissioner Gordon and Chief O'Hara as hostages? Right, Robin. He's demanding that Gotham turn over the Super Cruise Liner Empress for their return. It's up to us to change his plans. But it is Batman's plans that go awry, and we find the Kid Crusader surrounded by the Corsair of Crime and his crew. Ho ho ho! Batman, me hearty! You'll have to walk the plank! Bat back up in the copter, Robin is very upset. It's going to take special measures to get Batman out of this one. So, Robin drops some hostess cakes. And all of Corsair's guys are pretty are pretty excited about this. Hey look! Hostess fruit pies, apple, cherry, peach! Keep your eyes on Batman, fools! I'd rather get my hands on the light tinder crust and delicious fruit filling. Great thinking, Robin. Tell your crew to release the hostages. Take a bath, Corsair. And at the end, Batman and Robin are inside the Batcopter with Corsair, Commissioner Gordon, and Chief O'Hara. 
and Commissioner Gordon says, Corsair, you'll get yours. About ten years. And Cheaper Hero says, Aye, and we'll get our and we'll get ours delicious hostess fruit pies. Which is a terrible Irish accent. I am so sorry. But you do get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. That was interesting. Uh, it's drawn by Kurt Swan and appears to be inked by Vince Coletta. And I'm only basing that on the look of the artwork. It's obviously Kurt Swan. The inks look like Vince Coletta. That's what I'm going with. I have nothing to back that up. But once again, it's the more modern version of Batman. I'm not a huge fan of Kurt Swan's version of that. Um, I mean, it's not terrible this time, but it's not my favorite. Robin looks okay, though. And Corsair doesn't look terrible. Commissioner Gordon's all right. Anyway, moving right along, the next ad page is a, a, a three-part house ad. The first part is a, the Batman Spectacular on sale July 27th. 68 pages, all new, no ads. Three amazing Batman thrillers. I now pronounce you Batman and Wife by Denny O'Neill, Michael Golden, and Dick Giordano. Hang the Batman by David Reed, Mike Nasser, and Joe Rubenstein. And the first Batman graphic story, Death Strikes at Midnight and Three by Denny O'Neill and Marshall Rogers. And the cover is a beautiful Marshall Rogers cover and it, with a message, Batman, find my killer, I'll rise from the grave and hang you by the neck until you are dead. And of course, there's a noose on the cover as well. So Batman seems a little shocked. Uh, Rogers' art seems a little different here. His style for Batman's cowl especially, but I don't know if that's the inking or it's just a change he made to the artwork. He, he's, he's made the... Um, bat ears a little wider so it just looks a little different i don't know uh the next part is from the pages of adventure comics the longest dead man story ever published 25 all new pages in showcase number 105 on sale july 18th that's right dead man returns with a and at least the cover is by jim aparo it doesn't look terrible and dc classics the best in comics entertainment in Demand Classic number one, featuring The Flash of Two Worlds. That's right. The story that introduced the concept of the multiverse. And that's on sale July 6th. Western Classics number one features Batlash and Johnny Thunder, and that comes out on July 13th. You'll notice as we go down the ad page, everything gets newer. It gets more close, or goes back earlier and earlier in the month. Those two covers are a little hard to see. The Demand Classics issue is covered up by the Western Classics issue, and the Western Classics cover is too small to really make out much detail. Um, let's see, moving forward. Oh, this is kind of cool. The Super Hangups, 25 cents. A $3 value for only 25 cents. Your hero adds zap, sparkle to your room. And you can get. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Spider-Man. Your choice of one for your wall. And apparently they, you know, you put them on your wall. I don't know how easy they are to peel back off, but yeah. But yeah, 25 cents for any, any of these. And you get to pick one. Not bad. The next ad page is a two-page spread for the, uh, let's see. 
the Clark Bar ad, this time featuring the Joker, drawn apparently by Neil Adams. It looks pretty cool, actually. Ha 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 ha! It's the infamous Milk Duds Super Duds Weepstakes. I, I say it like that because that's kind of the version of Joker that was on TV at the time, since, you know, it's the 70s. Uh, next up is a, for a bunch of t-shirts and beach towels featuring your favorite DC heroes. The same Batman image is used on both his t-shirt and his long sleeve shirt. He's not on a towel, apparently. Uh, Superman has a running pose on his towel, but a flying Kurt Swanish pose on the t-shirt. Wonder Woman has a what is running and twirling her lasso both on her towel and her t-shirt. And Captain Marvel, yes, Shazam. Also has a t-shirt. It's kind of hard to see what his image is because it's drawn terribly. It's only available in kid sizes. They also have shirts uh, based with or with Spider-Man, Hulk, Captain America, and Thor on them. But of course, they're not going to show them in a DC book. Which means that I'm sure if you look at another Marvel book from about the same period, we'll probably see that it's got those four and say also available in superman batman one roman and shazam and the cool thing is there's a little thing at the top of the page that says produced by the joe kubert school really cool uh moving right along it's the letters page but no one uh of note uh at the bottom of it though it says coming this summer the dc explosion with omac which is kind of sad because, well, I'll tell you in a little bit. Hodgepodge page. The bottom part is a strong muscle thing. But the top half, it says, on August 8th, the Vixen strikes back. And I can't really tell who does the art here. But this was Jerry, going to be Jerry Conway's introduction of the Vixen to the DC Universe. Unfortunately, Things happen that prevent this from actually happening. And she doesn't show up until years later and in a much better costume. This costume's a little, well, it's, yeah, it's a little wow. It's a little out there. But obviously the Vixen does come back. I mean, she was in the post-Infinite Crisis Justice League, for crying out loud, and on Justice League Unlimited. Uh, let's see, moving right along, you get army figures. No one cares. Top, okay, next page. Top half is to subscribe to the Direct Currents monthly newsletter or your favorite DC Comics. For $6.85, you can get all the 50-cent titles, such as our favorite super books. Or the $1 titles come out six times a month for the same price. And, well, actually, there's a couple super titles there, too. Adventure Comics, Superman Family, and World's Finest. Although, I guess at this point, Superman wasn't really in the adventure comics. And the bottom half is The Sound and the Fury of the War Thrillers, both on sale this month. Army at War number 1 comes out this month. As does G.I. Com GI Combat number... I can't tell. Uh, also comes out this month, and it's a dollar issue. Eight brand new blistering battle tales, plus two fighting features. So that's cool. Oh, and the Army at War has four sensational stories. I'll have to check and see if any of those were reprints, but I don't know that they were. Uh, then the Daily Planet page, Dead Man Lives, which we already talked about. Uh, Shazam moved over to World Finest. So he's got a story by E. Nelson Bridwell, Don Newton, and Kurt Schaffenberger. 
and they then they also talk about the fact that there's other stuff going on in the that issue superman and batman team up to learn why the third face is death by bob haney and kurt schaffenberger now the cover is by jim aparo and i'll talk about it in a minute but it looks pretty but uh to go from a jim aparo cover to a kurt schaffenberger story it's one thing with superman but his batman's even worse than kurt swan's uh, green arrow is also in there uh, when the he turns green with envy when the ruler of an insect race which dwells in the realm between earths one and two chooses the black canary as his bride that's interesting and even the creeper shows up by steve ditko so that's cool uh, we have more direct current stuff, which we're going to skip because we're going to be talking about that in the elsewhere. And Ask the Answer Man has some questions, including one that is kind of strange, uh, where someone wants to know about some of the back, uh, some of the supporting characters from Supergirl's series in the early 70s. Unfortunately, since the uh, future stories weren't written, we didn't learn any more about those characters. And they actually wanted Bob to tell him what happened, uh, to possibly know more about this girl's origin. So, yeah. Uh, there's a question about Matter Eater Lad's first appearance, possibility of bringing back Roy Raymond, TV detective, asking for Jim Aparo's address. That's not email, folks. Um, asking other stuff where Batman has had solo adventures besides Batman, Detective, and Brave and the Bold. Someone's a big Batman fan. And um, asking... Who did the story and art for Flash Doom Patrol team up in Brave and the Bold 65, which, by the way, uh, was written by Bob Haney and art appears to be but the handiwork of Bruno Primiani, if you care. Uh, the rest of the ads aren't comic related, super gifts and gimmicks, prizes for cash, and gliders. Yeah, they were selling gliders. Not cool gliders like build them and throw them. But elsewhere in the DC Multiverse this month, which is what we're going to look at next, over at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, thanks to Rip Hunter's Time Machine, we see that Batman number 304 came out this month. Batman has apparently been killed by the Underworld, and he can't, he can't avenge himself. And the backup feature is the public life of Bruce Wayne, which is kind of backwards from the private life of Clark Kent. See how that works? Ah, uh, Flash number 266 has the Flash going up against Heat Wave. Well, apparently someone has stolen Kid Flash's super speed. Justice League of America number 159 begins a multi-part story where they're doing their annual team-up with the Justice Society of America. This time they're going back to the Old West to meet Jonah Hex and the like, including Enemy Ace, in Crisis from Yesterday which was reprinted in Crisis on Multiple Earths, Volume 5, back in 2010. Batman Family, number 20, uh, features four big stories. Batman tackles the Ragman. Batgirl and Robin team up again for the peril of the Power Sower. Man-Bat is a private eye Man-Bat, and the Huntress has a trial by fire. With a cool Jim Starlin cover, it's not bad looking. Not a fan of his Batman I mean, he writes Batman pretty well in the mid-80s, but not a fan of his artwork for Batman. Ragman looks cool, though. 
Firestorm number five features the return of Multiplex, which is ironic because Multiplex was just in Firestorm number two. But, you know, whatever. Uh, unfortunately, for reasons I'm going to mention in a little bit, this is the last issue of the first volume of Firestorm. Super Friends number 14. The Super Friends go up against the Elementals. So that's pretty cool. And in the backup feature, we learn the origin of the Wonder Twins. Uh, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, number 244, the dark circle that crushed Earth. I don't really know much more about it than that, but it's got a nice cover by James Sherman and Joseph Rubenstein. World's Finest, number 253, like I said, Superman and Batman, uh, the Superman-Batman story is the third face is death. The cover is actually really cool. It's Jim Aparo cover. Superman is pulling Batman's, uh, has Batman in a headlock and is removing his mask and Batman is pleading with him not to because if someone sees his face or if anyone sees his face somebody will die and in the background I can't tell if it's a costume party or if they've gone back in time but it's a whole bunch of royalty so that's pretty cool uh, it, it is a really cool cover. Uh, Superman tackles the Microwave Man in Action Comics number 488 while Airwave makes his debut in the backup feature, a close shave for Airwave. Airwave was Harold Jordan, who I believe ends up being a nephew or somebody from Earth 2. I cannot honestly remember. But Airwave has a, several uh, yeah, has several backup stories in Action Comics over the years. Uh, let's see, Green Lantern number 109, which is actually Green, Air, Green Lantern co-starring Green Arrow number 109. Uh, uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow and Black Canary tackle Replicon, who has apparently removed Earth's ozone layer. And the original Earth 2 Green Lantern, Alan Scott, goes up against the Green Dragon of Death. It's got a cover by Mike Grell. Unfortunately, I don't think it looks all that great. It's not one of his best ones. And it, yeah, it's just, it's not one of his best efforts. Steel the Indestructible Man number five, where Steel has to go up against some crazy swamp monster and try not to get knocked back into the sand. Steel the Indestructible Man is a cool is a cool feature. The Don Heck art does not help it much. I'm just not a fan of Don Heck, especially inked by Frank Sharmonte. It just looks scribbled. It looks yeah, it just doesn't look very good. This is the final issue. Of Steel as well. He won't be seen again uh, until All Star Comic All Star Squadron number eight, which you can find out more about it on, on the Two True Freaks Network, thanks to the Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner. So I suggest you check that out if you want to see if you want to if you care. But uh, yeah, this is the final issue of Steel also. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. First, I need to mention Wonder Woman number 248, with Wonder Woman in the Crypt of the Dark Commander. And the battling Amazons deal with the wind between the stars. And by the way, this cover is by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. It is beautiful. It actually, uh, the creature that Wonder Woman has to go up against actually reminds me of the episode of Justice League, the cartoon where... Uh, the Justice League have to go go up against, or when the Justice League go to Paradise Island, and have to deal with those warriors that are basically zombie warriors. It's kind of cool. Uh, Wonder Woman looks a little different than 
he normally draws her, but I don't know. The, the, the costume looks right. It's just, I, I guess it's because it's from the back, so it looks a little different. Her hair looks a little longer, and the tiara goes all the way back and is over her hair instead of kind of hidden within the hair. It, I don't know. It just looks a little different. But uh, it's because it's kind of important. Last month, Harold did the DC Explosion, where all the books went up to 50 cents, and we had a total of 31 books come out that month. This month, October of 78, not near as many. Uh, this one, well, actually near a bit, it's about 27 or 28 of them. So apparently, my guess is that the explosion, implosion started right about here because next month, DC Comics only puts out 21 comics the whole month. 21. That's 10 fewer than what we saw during at the height of the explosion. And it's pretty quick how quickly things go down. Like I said, for example, Firestorm and Steel are canceled. Vixen doesn't even get off the ground because of the explosion, or the implosion, sorry. And despite it being solicited, I see no evidence of the Western classic or the Demand DC classic books that I mentioned in that one ad. There was um, one issue of Battle Classics from, la from the previous month. That was the only issue of that title. Dynamic Classics was the only issue, uh, issue of that title. Uh, Justice Society's uh, All-Star Comics is going to get canceled, and the Justice Society story will be finished up in Adventure Comics, or Showcase, one or the other. But yeah, this we're about to embark on the implosion. How will that affect the Superman book? Not much, really. Uh, we might see the we'll see the page count go down eventually with the backup features leaving the books. But other than that, you won't notice it much in the store in the book itself. But I will chronicle that any changes we notice between now and then. Although I will say some of the covers for next month look pretty awesome. But that's for next month. That's for next issue episode. Boy, I can't talk today. I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a great week. Make sure you come back next month for the startling conclusion to this great story. And until then, I'll see you later. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. Show notes can be found at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com, as well as links to the RSS and iTunes feeds and more. Also, we have a Facebook fan page where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted. Feel free to like us there. Want to comment on the episode you just heard? Email the show at superbronze1970 at gmail.com. Superman in the Bronze Age is a proud member of both the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com and the Comics Podcast Network at www.comicspodcasts.com. Make sure to check out both sites for more great podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.
listen to our show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phones. On demand and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. 